All right, I'm still sick. So if my voice sounds weird, that's why. But we're going to do this thing powered by DayQuil. So here we go. Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 306, King Edwig. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. And you can get instant access to all the members' extras by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Jean-Pierre, Jennifer, and Veronica for signing up already. The king is dead. Long live the king. So, last episode was a bit of a shocker, right? Well, after it launched, I got an email from a listener who hilariously is actually the daughter of a judge that once scared the hell out of me in court. Small world. But she wrote to me because she was understandably confused that while we're lacking key details of major political events and battles and just about everything going on in Scotland and Wales, despite all that, we still have this crazy story about new King Edwig's precocious sex life. I think her exact phrase was, How did that story get recorded? The reason why this story is handed down through the ages while other more important stories were forgotten is actually key to the real story of King Edwig the Fair's rule. Because that particular story actually isn't about Edwig. You'd be forgiven if you thought it was, given that Edwig was at the climax of the tale. But that story was really about Dunstan. If you look at the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, There's no record of Edwig's tryst, and that's because the scribes of the Chronicle were focused on two things, making the House of Wessex look good and talking about various things happening to the clergy. And the king's three-way met neither of those preconditions. So instead, we get this story from a document called The Life of St. Dunstan. And it's the same document that also tells us about how Dunstan fought the devil off with a pair of tongs, because apparently you don't want to get between Dunstan and a Waldorf salad. Now, the lives of saints are important documents for historians studying this period. But they're also peculiar documents, because while they have historical elements, these things aren't autobiographies, nor do they tend to be contemporary accounts. Instead, they're often written after the saint's death, many times by someone who didn't even know the saint in the first place. And the truth of these documents is that creating a historical record wasn't their goal. The goal of these authors was to make a religious case for sainthood. And if you know about saints, you know that at a minimum, this means that the lives of saints are going to include some pretty wild stuff. So while the goal of the Chronicle was to convince both political and religious audiences that the House of Wessex was noble and powerful, the goal of the lives of saints was to convince religious audiences of something else entirely. Namely, You're a wizard, Harry. Well, not you. Guthlack, or Cuthbert, or, in our case, Dunstan. But even among these spectacular texts, Dunstan's Vita, which is what a life of saint is called, is actually unique. But in many ways, it's kind of typical. It's written posthumously, being recorded about 10 years after Dunstan's death, and was written by an anonymous author known only as B. It engages in typical hagiographical style and spends a great deal of time proclaiming Dunstan's sanctity and his virtues. It was also part of a posthumous effort to have Dunstan rapidly canonized, meaning proclaimed a saint. And as such, this document, like all Vita, was a core piece of propaganda in support of sainthood. So all of that makes it pretty standard fare. 
But it's also apparent from this document that B actually knew Dunstan. And that grants this Vita a bit more weight than some of the other lives of saints. Furthermore, while the Vita does have a lot of the hallmarks of a hagiographical account, you know, miracles, devils, and the like, it isn't quite as sensational as many of the other Vita from this period. And that too adds to the weight of this account. And consequently, that's why it made it into the BHP. But even though this Vita has indications that it might be more reliable than many others, that doesn't mean that we should automatically take the story of Edwig the Fair's epic feat at his coronation night at face value. Every story that made it into the life of St. Dunstan was chosen for a reason. And none of the mitigating factors that we've talked about changed the fact that this document was part of a sales pitch for sainthood. And right about now, some of you are saying, okay, fine. I mean, if we're talking about Dunstan fighting the devil, I totally get the skepticism. But Edwig's coronation night festivities might have been magical for him, but I don't think it qualifies as a miracle. So why would B include that story if it wasn't true? Well, here's the thing about Vida. They're not just about chronicling supernatural events to establish which house a saint should be sorted into. They're also detailing the events of the saints' lives in order to make the case for their general piety and holiness. And that, I think, is where Edwig's coronation night fits in. See, a major theme in the story of St. Dunstan is his repeated exile from England. The one thing that you can learn from the life of St. Dunstan is that he had a talent for irritating the most powerful man in England, whoever that man happened to be at the time. And at the time of the royal three-way, Dunstan had already been expelled from the kingdom twice by two separate kings. In fact, Dunstan's quest for Benedictine reforms stems from the first time that he lived in exile. Exile was central to his biography. The arch-nemesis of Dunstan wasn't satanic power. It was secular rule. He's presented as repeatedly standing up to and being thwarted by secular nobles who were not motivated by service to God, but in service to their own politics in the kingdom. And that brings us back to the coronation night. See, King Edred died in late November of 955. And that means that King Edwig's sexy coronation night would have taken place probably in December of 955 or maybe January of 956. And then right on the heels of that coronation, the Chronicle, which had stayed silent on the details of the coronation night, suddenly perks up. And it tells us a couple things that happened in 956. First, it tells us that Archbishop Wolfstan of Jorvik had died, which made Edwig the first English king out of the last four to not have to worry about that two-faced nightmare. But the Chronicle also tells us that, quote, in that same year, Abbot Dunstan was driven out of this land oversea, end quote. Dunstan was kicked out of England for a third time. And it happens immediately after the coronation. Now, the scribes don't tell us why Dunstan was kicked out. But right on the heels of Edwig taking power, suddenly the powerful reformist monk had been sent packing. And that presented a bit of a problem for someone who wanted to lobby for that man's sainthood. I mean, when three of the last four kings have kicked your boy out of the kingdom, and you're trying to make the case that he's handpicked by God, you're going to need an explanation for that. Luckily, a common convention of hagiographical accounts is of the holy hero coming into conflict with secular powers, and then holding to their convictions, and eventually triumphing. 
Now, they do this not because it shows a rugged individualism or some sort of gumption on the part of the saint, but rather because it was a sign that the saint had God's favor. For example, Patrick's time in slavery wasn't a story about how he was humbled and how he attained enlightenment through understanding the lowest of the low classes. Instead, it was a story about how powerful God was and how he raised a slave to a saint. The author of The Life of St. Dunstan was making pretty much the same point. And the author takes great pains to demonstrate that every time Dunstan was exiled, he came back to England more powerful. Furthermore, these stories place Dunstan in positions that are unambiguously righteous. For example, in a prior exile, he'd been beaten and left for dead in a cesspit by his enemies before being driven out of the kingdom. But the big point of that story wasn't the worst mud bath of all time. It was that Dunstan's enemies were conspiring against him, that he'd been wrongfully accused, and that eventually he returned to power. So what we're hearing about is not just that he's pious, but he's also righteous. And every time he gets exiled, it's just another sign of how righteous he is. I mean, look at the way this story is being told. First, you have Athelstan's courtiers, who were jealous of how smart Dunstan was, so much so that they conspired against him. And then, after he came back, Edmund's courtiers got jealous and did the same thing. And B's explanation for all this was, to use a modern phrase, a humble brag. B says that Dunstan was so smart and so pious that it made people mad and jealous. So, when Edwig took the throne and Dunstan was kicked out of the kingdom for a third time, an explanation would be needed that would fit within the hagiographical constraints. But, something interesting happens. The story changes a bit. We don't get the typical, well yeah, Dunstan was the smartest kid in court and everybody got mad because he kept reminding the king that he hadn't done a pop quiz in a while. And instead, we get this story about a three-way that was so salacious that we even find it shocking today. That's not exactly the first thing that comes to mind when you're trying to make excuses. Especially considering that in relating this story, the author was basically accusing the king of some pretty serious impiety. And in trying to judge the validity of that account, that is no minor matter. The House of Wessex had successfully tied their rule to God. They weren't just the chosen leaders of the people. They were God's representatives on earth now. So to say, oh yeah, God's hand-picked dude had some pretty weird kinks, wasn't only dangerous to the accuser personally, it also faced serious headwinds if the author wanted to be believed at all. Because all things being equal, medieval people simply weren't going to want to believe such a story because it ran counter to how they believed power functioned, namely as a direct line from God to crown. And yet here we have B essentially suggesting that God elevated a pervert. It's strange. But here we are with this incredibly impolitic account that stands in stark contrast to the rest of Dunstan's story. And to be perfectly honest, that story about the devil was way more expected than this. So why do it? Well, first, remember that this account wasn't written until long after these events had already passed. And the evidence for why this story might have been written down lies between the coronation and the authoring of the life of St. Dunstan. And to start with, there are events that are independently corroborated in the Chronicle and the Charters. For example, we know that after Edwig took the throne, he did kick Dunstan out of the kingdom. He also married Elf Gifu, 
Elf Gifu being the same daughter that appeared in that Coronation Night story. And then, shortly after taking the throne, we see King Edwig giving enormous amounts of gifts to the church. Like, crazy pants-level gift-giving. It's seriously ridiculous how many charters we have from Edwig's reign. And that's because of the sheer scale of his gift-giving. No ruler in all of Europe had ever given so much land to the church as King Edwig did. None. Not Charlemagne, not Alfred, not Charles the Bald, nobody. In fact, it wouldn't be until the 12th century when his gift-giving would be matched. He gave so much land to the church that in 956 alone, which is the same year that he kicked Dunstan out of the kingdom, the charters where he's giving land to the church from just that year account for about 5% of all the known Anglo-Saxon charters that we have. Edwig was giving away huge amounts of royal land to the church. So the question is why? Well, it's possible that King Edwig was trying to head off political instability, and he did have some rather powerful enemies. In particular, there was the Elderman of East Anglia, a man named Athelstan. And Elderman Athelstan was one of those courtiers who created a political gravity of his own. He was a force of nature, and as a result, he acquired a nickname, Athelstan Half-King. And Athelstan Half-King's family had been in power since at least the time of King Edward. And while he was ruling over East Anglia, having been appointed by King Athelstan of England himself, Athelstan Half-King was part of the West Saxon nobility, and he held considerable sway in the halls of power as a result. And it turned out that Athelstan Half-King was not a fan of Edwig. And that was bad timing, because England was facing a political rift. There was significant tension in the realm about who held power and how much power should be held. And one of the major foci of this split was religion. We've spoken about the Benedictine reformers under Dunstan and how they were coming into conflict with the frat house culture of the pre-existing English religious institutions. But that conflict was about so much more than whether or not Brother Athelbrad of Einsham should be allowed to host a monthly orgy. What was at stake here was who held power in England, and how much power. The frat boy vibe of those houses were just a symptom of a larger issue. It was an issue the church was actively fighting against. Namely, that these religious houses were mere outposts of royal power. And the church wanted the religious houses to be their outposts of power. This was a fight over who was God's true representative on earth, and who got the last word. Dunstan was pretty sure it was him, and I'm sure it's a total coincidence that he kept getting exiled by the dudes who felt that the title of king put them in charge. But Edwig the Fair was young, and he was inexperienced. And by the time that he took the throne, he really hadn't been walking in the halls of power long enough to build the relationships necessary to withstand a challenge from someone like Dunstan, who had already served in the courts of three previous kings. So it comes as no surprise to me that, faced with such a formidable opponent challenging his authority, Edwig responded the way I think many 14-year-old boys would do if they were given unlimited power. He kicked Dunstan out. But that was a gross miscalculation, because even without Dunstan, the Benedictine reformers remained incredibly influential at court. In fact, Dunstan's own protege, Brother Athelwald, 
who himself was a Benedictine reformer, but reformer doesn't really capture it. He was more like a Benedictine extremist. Well, as you might remember, Brother Athelwald had been appointed as the tutor to King Edwig's own brother, Prince Edgar. So getting rid of Dunstan didn't get rid of the Benedictine reformers at all. They were in his base, training his dudes. And critically, the Benedictine reformers had the ear of Edwig's biggest internal threat to his reign. Athelstan Halfking was himself a Benedictine reformer. And more than that, Athelstan Halfking was also acting as young Prince Edgar's adopted father, so he knew the boy quite well. And I'm sure he also knew that he'd have a lot of influence over him and the crown should Edgar become king. A cabal was organizing against Edwig, and it was being led by two individuals that were very, very close to his younger brother. And now that Edwig has exiled Dunstan, he'd granted legitimacy to their complaints. So now, rather than quiet grumblings and a wish for a more pliable monarch, there was now a call for spiritual justice that was led by Dunstan's supporters and Athelstan Halfking himself. And this meant that any failure, any misfortune, anything that went wrong could be cast as a sign that the kingdom had lost God's favor due to Edwig's poor treatment of Dunstan. And it would follow that things wouldn't improve until Edwig's brother, Edgar, took the throne. So it makes perfect sense to me that right in the middle of this developing crisis, King Edwig was granting gifts to the church on a scale that had never been seen before in all of Europe. He didn't have much of a choice. But it doesn't look like the church was content to let Edwig buy his way out of this situation. They smell blood. Now, as we've spoken about many times before in the show, marriage was a powerful tool for a monarch during this era. It was how a dynasty could foster and strengthen important political alliances, which they would need if they wanted to maintain their hold on power. And sure enough, Edwig, shortly after taking the throne, married Elf Gifu. And we know that she was a noblewoman. But details on who she was specifically are irritatingly sparse. The chronicle and charters are silent on her. And the only source we have of who she and her family were comes from the life of St. Dunstan, and the records that themselves repeated the life of St. Dunstan. So consequently, we don't have an independent account of who she was. But we're told in the life of St. Dunstan that Elf Gifu's mother was a land magnate from Kent named Athel Gifu. And the idea that Edwig married into a wealthy southern dynasty strikes me as highly likely, especially if he was feeling politically vulnerable in the south, which it seems like he was. And a marriage like that would bolster his position. But the trouble here was that the church had a solution to it. In 957, Archbishop Otto of Canterbury declared that King Edwig's marriage to Elfgifu would be annulled on the grounds of consanguinity. Now, it's difficult to describe to a modern audience how shocking this move was. Annulments against the wishes of the people involved are actually quite rare. And even more so when that annulment involves a monarch. Furthermore, the consanguinity argument is downright spurious. In essence, what Otto was doing was declaring that Edwig and Elf Gifu were in an incestuous marriage, and therefore, it should never have happened. And he did this by pointing to church rules that said that you need seven degrees of separation between your ancestors. And think about that. Seven degrees. To make clear how much separation Archbishop Otto was demanding— 
your second cousins are three degrees separated. Seven is just bonkers. And the truth is that under church rules, just about every royal marriage probably should have been annulled on the grounds of consanguinity. When you get a chance, take a look at my Heptarchy family tree sometime. These dynasties really didn't have family trees. They just had one big family bush. So what we're talking about here is essentially a rule that was never actually enforced. But suddenly, the church got super interested in enforcing it right now on the frigging King of England. And tracing the events and the motivations and the actors, it really does appear that there's a full court press against the rule of poor Edwig the Fair. And it was likely led by Dunstan and his supporters. And this conspiracy becomes all the more likely when you see what else happened on that same year. It turns out that Archbishop Otta had been reaching out to the nobles of Northumbria and Mercia, and he'd been encouraging them to join Athelstan Half-King's faction. So in 957, on the same year that Otta annulled King Edwig's marriage and likely damaged a major political ally of his, Mercia, East Anglia, and Northumbria all openly rejected the rule of King Edwig. In their view, Prince Edgar was the rightful king. Edwig had been on the throne for less than two years, and already he was facing a full-blown civil war, fostered by one of his most powerful courtiers, Athelstan Halfking, and the spiritual head of his kingdom, Archbishop Otta. And they were all doing it in support of his own baby brother. Furthermore, they were doing it regardless of how many gifts he'd been giving to the church. That's a bad situation. And it became quite clear to Edwig that he wasn't going to be able to buy his way out of this. So he made a concession. He would divide the kingdom. The lands to the north of the Thames would be ruled by Edgar. And the lands that remained in the south would stay under his control. And it's really hard to see this as anything less than a total capitulation. The vast majority of his kingdom was now lost and was in the hands of his brother. A brother who apparently was totally fine with this arrangement. Which makes me think that Christmas dinners must have been pretty awkward. But that awkwardness wouldn't last too long. Because less than two years later, in October of 959, King Edwig died. He was about 18 years old. And weirdly, no one's interested in talking about how he died. Not a thing. There's no discussions about weird dietary habits, no stomach pains, no battles, no random criminal guests at a feast. Nothing. One day he's walking around, you know, just your average 18-year-old dude who'd been forcefully divorced by the Archbishop of Canterbury and lost most of his kingdom to a conspiracy that wanted his brother to rule all of England. And then the next day, he's dead. And wouldn't you know it? That brother did inherit all of England. And one of the very first things that new King Edgar did was to bring Dunstan back to England, and upon his return, give him the bishoprics of Worcester and London. What an interesting series of coincidences. And remember, this is the information that's corroborated in the Chronicle and the Charters. So even without the story of the Coronation Night three-way, we have an uncontradicted story of a reign that was marked by massive amounts of instability, widespread opposition, and an untimely demise. Furthermore, what's really remarkable about this story is what we don't hear about. 
For the first time in over a century, the constant drumbeat of Scandinavian raiders, invasions, conquests, and wars ends. England, for the first time in its history, isn't under a threat of invasion. And perhaps it's due to the sudden lack of an outside threat that we're seeing these cracks forming within the power structures that shape the country. Because now, rather than being solely concerned with putting out fires, the question is becoming, who will we be going forward? And in response to this era of peace, we're seeing a flourishing of ecclesiastical interest that we haven't seen since the days of Bede. But that's not without its own challenges. Without an outside threat to unify around, it seems that certain forces are beginning to turn on each other. And that brings us back to the life of St. Dunstan. The Vita was recorded about 40 years after all these events had passed. Edwig, his brother Edgar, even Edgar's successor, Edward the Martyr, were all long dead by the time that this thing was written down. So let's keep that in mind when we talk about what the Vita tells us. But here's what it says. As we learned last week, it talks about how Dunstan broke up a coronation night three-way with Edwig's future bride, Elf Gifu, and her wealthy landowning mom, Athel Gifu. And on the surface, it seems like this was very much a straight condemnation of Edwig. But it turns out it was a little more nuanced than that. Because as you know, kings were God's representatives on earth. So while King Edwig was stunningly unpopular and clearly a weak king, the authority of the crown could be damaged if these opposing forces simply declared him ungodly. So instead, our author, B, comes up with a deft solution. He implies that Edwig was immoral. But ultimately, he paints Edwig as a passive actor in the situation. While Edwig was lacking a certain moral fortitude, ultimately, he was seduced by two wicked consorts. So rather than discussing the plot to oust Edwig from power, instead, the focus of B's account is that there's a plot being carried out by mother and daughter to disempower Dunstan by manipulating the king. And it's a plot that's carried out immediately following the aftermath of the coronation. The Vita tells us that once Dunstan is removed from the kingdom, Athelgifu rushed to seize his lands as well. So once you strip away the sex, we're suddenly left with something that sounds very much like every other story that Bede tells us about regarding Dunstan's courtly problems. Namely, that people get jealous of him and try and kick him out of the kingdom and take his stuff. And meanwhile, the king who's doing the exiling is just kind of a hapless victim to the whole thing. By doing it in this manner, B avoids challenging the divine rights of kings by turning to the well-worn trope of the manipulative, oversexed, wanton harlot. Or harlots. These women and their unnatural lust for power are the real villains in this story. And meanwhile, Dunstan is standing between their corruption and the sanctity of the crown. With that framing, even Edwig's marriage annulment is an attempt to free the king from the clutches of evil women, rather than, you know, a power play by an opposing royal faction. And as a bonus, by putting it this way, it justifies any retribution carried out against the house of Athel Gifu, because it will be a just punishment for their immoral behavior. So rather than a shocking story about sex, which obviously it kind of is, the ultimate thrust of the story is that Dunstan is a godly hero trying to save the soul of the king and the kingdom, rather than, you know, being a political actor 
who frequently overreached so hard that he found himself in exile multiple times. Furthermore, the pressure that was being placed upon the crown through what appears to be at least political maneuverings, if not outright coups and murder, is being recast within the hagiographical convention of a saint being unjustly cast out, only to return more powerful and respected. Now, ultimately, we can't truly know what happened on the night of Edward's coronation, just like we can't know whether or not King Edward died of natural causes at the ripe old age of 18. Anything is possible. Personally, my suspicion is that Athelgifu was indeed a powerful Kentish noblewoman, and she was working to expand her family's influence by arranging a marriage between Edwig and her daughter, and that this whole story about a three-way was a political maneuver to diminish the status and the power of her dynasty, even decades later. And the reason why I feel that way is due to how unusual it is for an archbishop to forcibly annul a royal marriage, and how both Athelgifu and the archbishopric had their centers of power located in Kent. And how we know from other charters that many rich landholding women found a great deal of the wealth that they had under their control within religious houses, which was a fact that very well could have put her in conflict with Dunstan and the archbishopric as a whole, just as the Vita claimed. In that circumstance, Creating a lascivious story about oversexed women using their wicked wiles over some unsuspected young king would be an effective way to deal with the Edwig problem while also undercutting a rival to Dunstan and Archbishop Otta's power. But, like I said, we really can't know for certain. It could have also played out exactly as the Vita said, and that there really was a three-way, and all of this was just a cascading series of unfortunate events that started with Edwig getting cock-blocked. I don't know. But what I think is increasingly clear here is that now that England has stabilized and has become a formal kingdom, and now that the threat of Scandinavian raiders has subsided, the political problems within the kingdom were starting to become ever more apparent. These people needed a better hobby. But hey, the king is dead. Long live the king. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter, and we have plenty of other communities, including Reddit and a whole bunch of other places, and you can find links to all of them in the communities section of thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Thanks for listening.